Over the summer, we have been exploring this biblical call to holiness together as a church. Each week, we've been opening the scriptures, asking the question, how can we, as followers of Jesus, become holy like God is holy? How can we learn to move towards God and become like the God we worship? So this morning, we're going to wrap up our series with one of the most potent amazing practical passages in our New Testament. So if you need a Bible, we're going to definitely be in the text uh, of 2 Peter this morning. Raise your hand and, and we're going to be digging in together. As a young Christian, one of the first books that I ever read uh, was by a poor 17th century Baptist preacher named John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Many of you have read the book, A Pilgrim's Progress, I imagine. But I remember as a young believer opening up this book, and I can honestly say that no book I've ever read gave me a more vivid imagination for what the Christian life and a life of holiness look like, quite like this book. Those familiar with the book that John Bunyan wrote from a prison cell as he was persecuted for preaching Christ in a culture and a time where unless you were associated with the state church, the Anglican church, you were persecuted and many times arrested for preaching Jesus. So from a prison cell, making shoelaces to feed his family, he wrote this allegory and this story with a protagonist named Christian who makes a long, arduous, dangerous journey out of the city of destruction towards the celestial city. A couple chapters into the book, Christian meets a man named Evangelist who tells him the news that the city that he resides in, the city of destruction, where the children go around all day paying petty Games where people are, are just given over to whatever desire they, they, they want, the crime, injustice, all of this immorality in this city of destruction. Evangelist says there's a better city, a city where a loving God who's called you by name is waiting for you and you must make a journey out of the city of destruction. Go to the wicked gate and there your burden will be rolled away. And so with this evocative language, just a couple chapters in, Christian goes to this place, the wicked gate, this hill with a cross on top of it, a narrow, narrow gate. And as he enters through that gate, his burden is rolled away. It rolls down the side of the mountain and he's forgiven and he begins his journey. Now, if the journey for Christian ended at conversion, it would only be a three-chapter book, and I don't think it would have become one of the best-selling books of all time next to the Bible. But the reason that the story is so great is in this rich, rich, rich language. Uh, it recounts Christian's journey as he leaves from that place, the wicked gate, and through many dangers, toils, and snares, makes his way towards the celestial city. Now, all along the way in this journey, Christian is tempted to take an easier path. He's frustrated with himself. And many times he's ready to throw in the towel on this journey altogether and give up. 
At one of these occasions in the book, Bunyan writes these words as Christian is encouraging himself in his journey. And I want you to listen to this language, what Christian says about his journey towards the celestial city. He says this, this hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up, heart. Let neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go. Than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. That's good stuff. Like, we don't talk this way, <laughs> you know, in our, our culture. But I, I love that as he's ascending you know, this, this difficult path, he, he says, you know, it's better to go the difficult way to life than the easy path to woe and destruction. You see, the whole point I believe Bunyan is trying to make throughout this allegory is that the Christian life is a journey from start to finish. And as we've been seeing throughout the series, as we've been defining holiness as moving towards God, this journey each day of making progress, of leaning into God's promises, receiving God's spirit of holiness. It's a journey, not just a destination in the Christian life. So much like Christian's journey in Pilgrim Progress, the pursuit of holiness rarely is the path of least resistance in life. In fact, the journey of holiness is not an easier way to live, but it is the path to the abundant life that we are pining for. And so we make this journey, but we don't make it alone on our own resources. In fact, we can't. And so throughout the scriptures, we've been given these testimonies from pilgrims who've gone before us to encourage us to not give up and to lean into the journey of following Jesus and becoming like him. And one of these imperfect pilgrims that we're going to hear from today is Peter. Of all of Christ's disciples, none have more encouragement and wisdom to offer us on the journey of holiness than the Apostle Peter. So if you have your Bible on your phone or in, in, the, in the Word and printed text, turn to 2 Peter. We're going to dive in right at verse 1 as Peter encourages the church to pursue holiness. Listen to these words. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises 
so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Forever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, amen. So encouraging, these words. Peter's goal throughout this letter is he's writing this letter that he intended to be circulated among persecuted churches in Asia Minor was to encourage followers of Christ who had just begun their journey of faith to go all the way, to make progress and to move forward pursuing the holy life that God had called them to in Christ. So with this final, final letter before Peter's eminent execution was looming over him, Peter penned these words to give us three things that we need as fellow travelers that are journeying towards holiness to make progress in our journey. It's three things, and here's what they are. Peter shows us the resources that God has given us for our journey the work we must put in, and the reward that awaits us. Or to put it another way, Peter hones in on the resources for our holiness, the work of holiness, and the rewards of holiness in this passage. Resources, work, and rewards. That's the structure of this passage So Peter Peter begins before telling us to do a thing by reminding us of the divine resources God has given us for the journey of holiness. Let's read again in verses 3 and 4. Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You know, I... I like the ASV. It's, it's fine. It's good. It's, it's very, very, very literal. But to be honest with you, I'm partial to the way my good, old, faithful NIV translation of, of this 
We got, I got like an amen for the NIV. That's awesome. That person's really going to be saying amen when things ramp up. That's awesome. The NIV, it's amazing. It's the first Bible I ever had, this tattered version of the NIV. I like how they translate verse 3. The way that the NIV translators translated verse 3 is they say, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. How encouraging, friends, that God has given us everything we need for a life of holiness, that nothing's left out, you know, for our journey. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm packing for a journey, I have this sneaking suspicion in my gut that I'm always forgetting something. So, so as I'm packing, you know, I'm always packing the car, putting things in there, trying to keep my children from running out in the street and getting everything in the car. And then, you know, on the road, I'm going through, you know, kind of like the, the list. I'm like, did we get that? Did we forget this? Did we forget the children? Did, you know, did, did we pack everything? And there's just nothing worse than kind of, you know, being you know, on a road trip or something and you get there and then you realize, you know, I, I have no adapter for my phone like whatsoever and, and I, I forgot this and then it costs you like $50 to replace it. Like there's just nothing worse than having that feeling of, oh, something's missing. Do you know that you have everything that you need, that, that God is not a forgetful packer? That he's given you every single resource you need for the journey he's called you to, to become holy like he's holy. And so what Peter does is he hones in on two essential resources that we have to learn how to make use of and appropriate in order to make progress as followers of Christ. And there are two things, God's power and God's promises. Throughout this series, we've been going in great detail into each of these resources. God's power for our holiness, God's promises, or his word that, as Guy explained last week, it makes us holy, it sanctifies us, it cleanses us, it scrubs out the imperfections in our lives and fills us with hope. That we can't make progress as followers of Christ apart from God's power and God's promises. You know, two weeks ago, as we were watching the eclipse from our front yard, we were not part of, of the path of totality whatsoever. We were with the 1% crowd. That was good enough, you know, for, for us. And so we avoided the crowds and we watched it from, from our front yard. And I was amazed, I don't know about you guys, um, that were part of the one, who are the one percenters like here? You saw like the one, one percent, one percent. I know I felt judged, you know, for not like being in the path. Like I just, I missed like the greatest thing that ever happened. You know, it's like, where were you when that happened? It's like in the one percent crowd. It, it was still awesome and it did get dark, but even with one percent of the sun, I don't know about you guys, but I was amazed at how much light there still was just with one percent. You know, later on that day, I read a scientific article, a journal article, that actually was just on the power of our sun, that many times we just take for granted. We're walking around on a beautiful sunny day like this, praise the Lord, and we take it for granted that the sun's immense power. According to NASA, the sun's output is roughly 380 septillion watts. Uh, if you're not fresh on your septillions, I have written it out. It's this many 
watts. Or actually, to measure the suns, they had to create a, a totally new category of wattage, and they measure it in yottawatts. Yottawatts. So, so 380 septillion yottawatts. That's how much the sun's power. To bring that into perspective, every second that the sun radiates energy gives us enough energy in one second to power all the electrical needs on earth for one million years. One second, one million years of power. So, so, so follow this logic, if you would, for a second. If the Alpha and Omega Almighty God, the great I Am, who hung all the stars in our universe that contains what today's scientists predict up to two trillion galaxies worth of stars, and our sun is one of the smaller stars, in these galaxies, if our sun has that kind of power and that God lives in you, then you don't have a power shortage. <laughs> you don't have a power shortage. You don't. We don't. But yet, the quirks and the sins and the struggles in my life that follow me around, many times I feel powerless against these things, my, my, my impatience, the fact that sometimes yelling is easier than being self-controlled and patient. I mean, my goodness, I want God's divine power at work in my life, but many times I feel like I experience power outages as a Christian. I don't know about you. So I had, I had a moment of shame that hit me this last, this last week on a day off uh, I had a, a glorious, glorious time, was out in the gorge with my drift boat uh, for a few hours and was driving back on I-5 and ran out of gas. Uh, hold on, it gets worse. <laughs> way, way worse. On I-5, underneath the Martin Luther King uh, overpass, right at that place where there is not a shoulder in sight, you got like OMSI, like right there and, and you have like I-5 south, like to the right, and then you just have shame. And I was in the zone of shame. People were passing me um, saying many unholy things <laughs> about my experience. I collectively felt the hate of Portland in that moment and I was going to be killed by someone. You would have read about, you know, Pastor Christopher dying on the road if it had not been for a very, very kind, merciful ODOT. ODOT man. I called, I asked for help. I said, I'm going to die here on I-5. I've run out of gas. I'm the idiot towing a boat. There's not a shoulder to be found. Please help me. I am powerless. So I called, ODOT up, showed up, they filled my car up with a gallon of gas. It was the mercy of God. And I, I moved on. And, and I'm standing here today instead of just a story in the Oregonian because of that, because of that. But here's what I realized after it. I think the Lord used this almost like, like an allegory for my life. So many times, I think throughout my Christian life, God is not lacking in power, but I, I actually kind of live my Christian life running on empty. 
driving kind of from one experience to the next, maybe for you, it's Sunday to Sunday, driving on empty, the lights on, it's like you really need to fill up with the spirit of holiness. You really need God's power. But I'm not in the habit of asking for God's power every day. Sometimes I'm just deluded into thinking, you know, I I got this. I got this. And then I run out of power. And that's when the prayers of desperation, where I realize I'm powerless to change this thing or this circumstance. I don't know what to do. I need wisdom from above. Um, You know, we don't have to go through our Christian life driving on empty. That God has immense, eternal resources of divine power to share with us. Let's just learn to ask and to put that power to work. So to teach us how to tap into God's divine power, Peter shows us a second resource that that God gives us, and it's his precious and very great promises. I love the way that Peter puts it. Listen to this. After telling us God's divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness or holiness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What a gift God gives us in his word. There could not be a more precious or a greater gift for our own holiness than the gift of God's word. Peter tells us that in a divine, miraculous way, as we saturate our lives in the scriptures, we become partakers of God's divine nature. That that these words have power to cleanse our hearts and minds and make us as holy and as loving as the Jesus that we follow. But one of the things that Peter gives us away, which is so helpful, is as we encounter obstacles in our journey of holiness, is he tells us that although the scriptures, they teach us what it means to become partakers of God's divine nature, which we've been exploring throughout this series, just the miracle, the miracle of being baptized and hidden in Christ, being made new, having the Holy Spirit inside of you. As we learn about those precious truths, one of the practical ways that the scriptures instruct us and counsel us like a map on our journey of holiness is it teaches us how to avoid sin's temptations. These precious promises, what they do is Peter tells us that it helps us escape from being corrupted by sin's temptation and desire. If you want to know how temptation works, this is how sin works. Sin is constantly making empty promises to our hearts. When you boil it down, that's what temptation is, is it's actually a promise, an empty promise that tells us that if we will take many times an easier path, we will get what we want. So sin comes into our lives and it whispers, if you cheat on your tax return, 
you'll have more money and you'll be happier. If you have the affair, no one will know and you'll finally be with someone who understands you. If you get the divorce, you will finally, after all these years of hardship, you'll finally be free to be who you really are. This is how sin works. It's constantly making empty promises to us. And this is how it's worked from the beginning, where the very first lie came to Adam and Eve as the serpent whispered, if you eat the fruit that God has put off limits, you won't die. You'll be like God. And you'll be able to decide for yourself what's good and what's evil. River West, friends, we will always be lured and deceived into believing sin's, sin's empty promises unless we enter each and every day armed with God's very great and precious promises reverberating in our hearts and minds. Last week, God shared how God's word has the power to sanctify us and make us holy. Today, I want to give you a practical application in light of what Peter says here about God's word that I believe will help you in your pursuit of, of holiness. When you open the Bible, you need to understand that the goal of daily Bible reading is not just to cross something off a spiritual checklist or to amass spiritual information and principles alone. It's actually to open up your heart and mind to God's precious promises for you. You see, reading the Bible, Bible as simply just a book of principles to understand is different than reading this as a book of promises I need right now in my life in order to stand, to be faithful, to be encouraged, to not give up. And so when you read the scriptures, should always have your eyes sharpened to a promise or two that you can actually lay hold of and, and, and cling to it and watch for how the Lord will keep that promises, that promise to you. And so what I do many times in our family, what we've done for many years, is we're constantly asking God for a promise to our family. Not just personal promises to me, but just promises that, that, that our family needs. And we'll write them out on a glass board. And we'll watch and see how God actually fulfills those promises in his word. You know, when we saturate our life in God's word, this book becomes more precious when we put in the work and we read this, not just as a book of spiritual information, but personal promises from a God who loves us, who laid down his life for us, who's with us, these promises have power to encourage us and give us counsel when we're ready to call it quits and give up or settle for easier paths as sin comes and tempts us. So what I would recommend every single day is find a promise in God's word and hold it out in front of your nose like a luscious carrot. <laughs> and, and just fix your mind and heart on that promise. And when temptation comes, because it will, 
you'll have something better, a better promise than the empty promise of sin. And this will help you in your pursuit of holiness. So if you need a promise to start with, how about this one? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. That's a pretty great promise, isn't it, River West? And the Lord will fulfill that promise. He'll show you, hey, I've given you what you need. I've given you my power. I've given you my promise. You can do this. Now, while that promise of God's divine power, of God giving us everything we need for our holiness, may very well be one of the greatest promises, the most precious promises in the Bible, it will not make you one lick holier unless you wake up each day and put this promise into action in your life. And it's why the flow of this passage goes from Peter showing us, reminding us of the divine resources God gives us for our holiness to the work that we must put in in order to make progress. So look at how Peter changes directions in verse 5 how he connects his argument here. He says, for this reason, because God has given you everything you need for holiness, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Man, that's a great list. I don't know about you, but when I read that list of those virtues and those qualities, how I want to become a man who is patient and kind and self-controlled and loving, knowledgeable of the scriptures in my mind, but having a heart that overflows with a steadfastness so that when hard times come, I can, I can press in and I don't flake out how I want to become this kind of person that Peter describes here. But the truth is, you know, we don't become this kind of holy people apart from effort. That there is no such thing as Christian holiness by osmosis. It's why you've never, ever met a loving, self-controlled, godly person that just sits around and does nothing. Or just binge-watching Netflix would result in all of us being a lot more loving and self-controlled. That apart from, from hard work and effort, these virtues in the Christian life do not appear. They don't appear. So if you want to be a person that embodies these kinds of qualities, it will require a great deal of diligent effort on your part, on my part. Now, when some folks run into verses like this in the New Testament that tell us to make every effort, or as Peter says later on, be all the more diligent to practice these qualities, I think they wrongfully conclude that Peter's advocating for some kind of works-based righteousness where we earn our holiness or we earn our salvation. But as Dallas Willard put it so well, I have this quote up here from Dallas Willard because this has been so helpful to me. Dallas Willard says this, and I believe it's right on. 
Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is action. Without effort, we would be nowhere. And I think that's essentially the thrust behind Peter's exhortation to make every effort, work hard, pursue these qualities, because if they're yours, if they're ever-increasing, River West, it'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your Christian life. But there's no way to be a fruitful Christian apart from making effort, apart from making effort. You see, I'm actually convinced that one of the greatest obstacles to Christian holiness facing us today is actually not works-based righteousness, as it was in the culture that Peter and Paul and others were refuting this idea that you would earn your holiness or earn your salvation. I believe the biggest obstacle and one of the greatest threats facing the church today is essentially a spiritual passivity that believes that I can enjoy all the benefits of the gospel without exerting any effort whatsoever. That I can become holy like God is holy, but all I need to do that is let go and let God. That's it. That one thing, that's the one trick where if you learn how to do that, to let go and let God in all matters of life, that you will become a radiant, loving, self-controlled Christian. And that's bogus. It's totally, totally bogus. Let go and let God is applicable and helpful in matters of trust. For instance, Jesus says, don't worry. You can't add anything to your life or solve your problems by worrying. So don't worry because that doesn't fix problems. Trust me. If you take the adage, let go of this thing you're holding on to and worrying about and entrust it to God, that is super helpful and biblical. If you take a let go and let God attitude and apply it to your personal holiness, it will not help you whatsoever. You can let go and let God all day. And I think if we could see the Lord, he'd be looking at you going, I didn't ask you to let go. I asked you to hold on. I didn't ask you to sit back and wait for me to just zap you and make you into a self-controlled, loving, virtuous person. I want you to follow me. I want you to make every effort. I want you to learn how to practice these qualities in your life. You know, to, to be honest and to be fair, I think that when all of us come to Christ, we expect our lives to get easier. I believe that's the expectation that almost implicitly we come to the Lord through hardship, feeling burdened, feeling stuck. And we, the, the primary thing that we want is we want our lives to get easier. We want the pain to go away. We want our problems to be fixed. The only problem is, is that while Christ has come to give us life and life abundantly, life overflowing joy that this world can't deliver, a happiness that lasts, meaning, purpose, all of it, Christ came to give us those things. 
he has not promised us an easy path. Christ has not just primarily come to make our lives easier. In fact, on one occasion, Jesus himself turned to his disciples and described the way of holiness in these terms. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Friends, the older I get, the more I've come to realize that that the Christian journey is not the easiest path among many. Following Christ may not make your life easier, but it will make your life more meaningful, better, more alive with promise. It's a better way. And so often in life, the better way that Christ has called us to is not the easiest way. Several weeks ago, I took my my son on a 15-mile backpacking trip up in the Cascade um, Mountains up in Washington, an area called Goat Rocks Wilderness. I have some photos here from that trip. It was one of the most precious moments I I think I've, I've shared. It was absolutely incredible. I felt at times on this journey that I was actually in the sound of music. You know, like here, I was like, the hills are alive, you know. Uh, there was wildflowers. It was, it was absolutely one of the most epic, amazing adventures I think I, I've ever done with my son. But, but leading up to it, it actually took a lot more preparation than I, I knew I was in store for. Um, and so we actually had to go to REI and spend a small fortune on things that are, are designed, you know, like they design like these chairs and things like that to be as light as possible. And as we were training, I realized, you know what, this is a very, very smart market right here because when I'm carrying around a 40 pound like backpack, light is good. And so, so we stuffed our packs and, and the, the months leading up to this trip, my son and I, we did all of these training hikes in Tryon Creek and another other places to try and prepare for, for this 15-mile hike where there was uh, an elevation gain of like 3,000 feet, which I felt with a 40-pound backpack. I felt every single pound. Um, and it was amazing, but it was also hard. Um, it was really hard. Uh, on the second day, um, my son... Um, began to really, really, really struggle as we made our way up to a point where we were summiting and were in a place where we could see Mount Adams, um, Mount Rainier, Mount Hood. It was absolutely incredible, but his morale was sinking through the floor. And he was ready to give up. And, and he turned to me and he said, Dad, m- my foot is on fire. Uh, and I can't do this anymore. And as the tears were welling up and he was trying to, to just, just hold back from crying because he didn't want to cry and from his friends, but I could just see he was really, really struggling. Uh, I took his boot off and I realized this was my son's first blister that he's ever had. Uh, this is how we raise kids in our day and age. This is, <laughs> this is, this is not the days of like John Bunyan, you know. This is, this is my, my kid's first blister. 
And I, and I got out the moleskin and took his boot off and, and was, was taking care of this blister at, at a place where we had set up camp overlooking, you know, all this, this, this beauty of, of God's creation. And in that moment, I, I felt like the Lord just inspired some words of encouragement to my son. And I said, you know, Hayden, you're about to go into junior high and you're going to quickly find out that life is hard. Life is hard. Life can be brutal. And the things that Jesus has called you to, to pursue the man he's called you to become, it's not going to come easy. That the life that he's called you to as, as, as a follower, now that you've been baptized and you've professed your faith in Jesus, um, the path is going to come with blisters. There's going to be days where you, you want to give up, you want to turn around and, and give up completely on this. But buddy, I have a question for you. And I looked my son in the eyes and I said, this trip here tonight, you look around, you see all this, we're going to have a campfire, we're going to have dinner in a minute. Is it worth it? And he said, yeah, dad, it's totally worth it. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not easy. I don't know what you're facing, but, but I know that many of you are facing hardship, disease, struggles in, in your business, um, in your marriage. The path that Jesus has you on, it's the way to life. He's with you. He's given you everything that you need. And the reward that awaits you, friends, it's worth it. It's worth the blisters to follow our Lord Jesus up this path. It's worth it. It's so worth it. I, I believe if you boil it down, that's why Peter says, I want you to make every effort. Because it's so worth it. Every bit of effort we put in River West is worth the reward. You need to know to become a virtuous Christian like Peter, you will face your fair share of moral failures in life, you'll fall flat on your face. In order to grow into a self-controlled person, you will face temptations that will take you out. They just will. You will watch your heart be corrupted and taken out by empty promises. In order to becoming a loving person, like Peter describes here, affectionate, kind, constantly looking for ways to love others, your heart will be broken a thousand times over by imperfect people that God loves. There's no shortcuts in the call to holiness, but the reward that awaits us is worth every bit of blood, sweat, and tears that we put in to this journey. Amen, River West? That's what Peter ends by reminding his friends of is that although the journey is hard, and Peter knows that better than any other disciple, knows the hardship, that the reward that awaits us in Christ is worth it. That's why he tells us something so, so helpful in verse 9. He says this. He says, forever lacks these qualities that we just talked about, is so nearsighted, that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This is so fascinating. It's so helpful. If Peter says, you know, if you are in a place in, in your life where you're not pursuing 
these qualities, what's happened to you is you've become nearsighted. You have forgotten the reward of the gospel. You've forgotten. And and you're nearsighted. You're not focused on where this journey is leading. You're just focused on, on either your failures in the past that, by the way, let me remind you, that thing you've done, it's cleansed. It's scrubbed clean. God will not bring that up. Again, you've been cleansed from your former sins. And the promise ahead of what Christ has prepared for you is so infinitely great that you can't give up. Don't you dare give up because the reward that awaits you is worth it. That's what Peter says. He says, don't be nearsighted. Don't just fixate on your failures in the past or the problems you're facing. Open your eyes. Remember the gospel. It's something so amazing and personal that Peter gives away in this, this, this passage, in this exhortation, is his own heart for the church to remember the reward of the gospel. In fact, look at verses 12 to 15, just how personal Peter pleads with the church to remember the gospel. He says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities that you may know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. There's that word again. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. So Peter, in what would be his final letter before his public execution, he says, I've written this to stir you up and to remind you of the gospel, to remind you. Folks, the gospel reminds us of the lengths God has journeyed not only to cleanse us from our sins, to but prepare for us a celestial city that we'll enjoy forever, River West. That's why in verses 10 and 11, he says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election. Sure, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Peter says, if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall, he can't mean you'll never fail. Peter fell big time. Of all the apostles, we get to see the heights that Peter fell when he betrayed Christ around a campfire out of fear of being associated with Jesus. Peter fell. And we get to see this imperfect pilgrim Peter fall. But we also get to see Jesus lifting him back up again, having a breakfast on the beach and saying, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's saying, yes, Lord, I love you. Three times, one for every time that Peter fell, Christ lifts him back up again and says, the journey's not over for you. Friends, this morning, we're going to respond to this incredible promise by singing the song Amazing Grace. I'm going to have the worship team come up here. 
and felt this morning there could not be a more appropriate response of worship than to thank God for his grace that sustains us, that guides us, these scriptures that encourage us and counsel us when we feel disoriented or ready to give up, don't give up. Wherever you're at, you're facing things where you feel like life is too steep and you can't do this. The Lord will fill you with divine power. He's with you. You're not doing this journey alone. Look around. We're on this journey together. None of us has arrived But if we believe these unblushing promises in the scriptures, there's a celestial city that's waiting for us. And one day we will be as holy and loving as the God we worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, thank you so much for these these precious, great promises. From your son, Peter, We thank you that, Lord, you are a God who who gives grace to imperfect people. We would never be able, Lord, to, to move towards you unless you first move towards us. And so we want to thank you today, Lord, that by sheer act of grace, we get to be partakers of your divine nature. Teach us how, Lord, to grow into the kinds of people that Peter described here, that our lives would overflow with your love, Lord, towards you, towards others, that you would remind us this morning of the eternal kingdom that you've already richly provided a place in, Lord, for, for imperfect people like us. Thank you, Lord. We look to your grace. I pray, Lord, that your grace would infuse just a a fresh hope with whatever we're facing. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.